craze that's been sweeping not the nation, but the world. If you haven't heard about it, you're one of probably about three people. It's called Pokemon Go. Now, a couple of you are like, oh, no. And a couple of you are like, great, he's going to talk about it. A couple of people told me last week that they played it during the sermon uh, at the service last week. And so that confession is good for the soul. I understand that. For those of you who don't know what it is, it's a new video game. It's the biggest video game that's ever come out in the history of video games is what I read. It's uh, put on by Nintendo. When Nintendo released this game, the first day, their stock went up 20%. Nintendo's not a small company, in case you didn't know that. The next day, it went up 15%, so they're up over at least 35%. There was a Washington Post article that said that in the first few days of Pokemon Go coming out, they had more daily or were, or were approaching the amount of daily users that Twitter has. Twitter's been around for like 10 years, for those of you who didn't know that. They were around for a couple days, and Pokemon Go had become popular like this. What it is, it's a new kind of video game for most people. It's called Augmented Reality. And what that means is simply that you take your phone out and you can see reality, like you can see through your camera. Uh, and if I were playing it right now, I'd be able to see the audience here. But it, augmented reality is, and there are little creatures that are there too, and the goal of the game is to catch these creatures, apparently. One of the catchphrases is, catch them all. Yep, those are the people that are playing. One's like, mm hmm, mm hmm, that's, that's the catchphrase. Those are the ones. I'm not here today to talk about whether it's right or wrong to play. I'm just telling you it's popular. And, it, and it's changing the world. It's changing the way that people look at the world. It's changing uh, the way that people communicate. In fact, a lot of people are promoting it as it gets you out and you exercise not video games like you just sit on the couch, you're exercising, you're socializing. I was reading one professor in Rolling Stone magazine, I can't remember what his title was, but he was a professor, and he was talking about how this is going to change the world and how it's going to be like an industrial revolution. It's going to lead to people with digital overload and being addicted to technology. And I thought, isn't that already happening? Because he was saying that's five years from now. And then he said, here was his analysis. Academic guy, right? He said, it's going to get weird. <laughs> Thank you for your academic analysis, professor. And I thought to myself, it's already weird. <laughs> hey, man, all right. Or just starting out here. <laughs> but anyway, the, uh, some of the stories I saw this week, is that what struck me was that this augmented reality is actually impacting people's reality. And there was one guy that I saw that actually quit his real job to go play this game. And then what I started seeing was, and some of you may have seen this, I'm not sure if it's in Raleigh or not, but there are people that are actually making a career out of this game. Now, keep in mind, you've got to you know, tip your hat to their entrepreneurship. This game's only been out for two weeks. And if you go on Craigslist, you can find people that will offer to play the game for you while you go to your real job. <laughs> the going rate was about $20 an hour. I didn't do an analysis of this, but I saw some people 25 some people $16. they will play the game for you for four hours for $20 an hour, and they'll go catch creatures for you. While you live your real life, you can hire somebody at any rate. That's just kind of a funny thought. There's some major cities that people have started an industry of giving Pokemon Go tours. And so you can get in their car, play this game, and they'll drive you around and find creatures for $30. I told the first service, if anybody wants to hop in my car after the service, we can ride around the city and I'll charge you money. <laughs> and then just bring you back to the same spot and hopefully you found something. Anyway, there was one popular story that's out where two men in San Diego actually fell off of a cliff playing this game. One guy was found about 50 feet down. He was unconscious. 90 feet down was another. That'll alter your reality in the real world. There was one couple that was playing this game. It was around midnight or one in the morning. They were in Toledo, Ohio. They were outside of the zoo. Apparently, they told them there was a bunch of creatures inside the zoo. Not the kind of creatures most of us are thinking of. Fake creatures that were on our phone. They couldn't resist. They jumped the fence. They got arrested. That'll alter your reality. There are people that have played this in some pretty strange places. Um, some have gotten in trouble 
and others, it's just like, what are you thinking? And I want to just give this word of tip before I show this picture in just a second. Young men in our audience, maybe you're newly married or maybe you've been married, you're about to have your first baby. Let me tell you something. Be all there. Be engaged in that. Don't play any games on your phone. If you do play a game on your phone, don't play a fantasy game on your phone. If you do play a fantasy game on your phone, don't put it on social media like this guy did. He's playing a game. His wife's giving him dirt to a baby. Then there's another social media post I have to share with you because of the caption more than anything. We already have a lot of distracted drivers that don't text and drive thing, but this sign was actually put out by the city apparently in this city. <laughs> but it's the caption that I love. Somebody says in 2006, I bet in 10 years we'll cure cancer and have it the moon. We'll have world peace. But instead we have Pokemon Go. And this has really impacted people's lives. Now, you can't believe every story that you read. And so I looked at a lot of stories of different people. There was one story where people were in New York City, and they were so focused on their phones, they didn't even realize that Justin Bieber was playing next to them. Now, Justin Bieber is one of the most famous people in the world. And they show him playing this. I saw another thing on social media. There was a guy, he was standing there doing a video just to see what people would do. And he was, I think it was in New York City as well. And he just yelled out the name of one of the creatures, you know, Rockatoo or whatever the names were, Pikachu. And, and then all these people just started running. There was no creature there. He just started smiling because all these people would come running over there. <laughs> then there was one guy. This was the one that got me out of all the stories that I read though. There was one guy, he was in his 20s, and he was probably, you know, the kid when the trading cards started happening, and he wanted to play the video game, and a lot of people wanted it to be real, and now it's like it's real. He said he was so excited about this coming out, and he was out playing in his neighborhood one night, at 1 o'clock in the morning. He's looking for these creatures. He's playing on his phone. He sees another guy come walking up, and he says, are you playing Pokemon Go too? Apparently you can fight and battle in this. And the guy said, what? And then he stabbed him. He wanted to battle for real, and then he ran off. But here's what got me. The kid kept playing the game. He didn't go get help. And then when he was doing a news interview with his local news, it was somewhere on the West Coast. If you Google it, I'm sure you can find it. He says, and I quote, basically I risked my life. I don't know if he wanted to be a hero amongst those people that are playing all the Pokemon Go, but I thought to myself, you did. The problem is that was your real life. It wasn't a video game life. And this augmented reality is impacting your reality. Now I ask myself the question, why did this become so popular? But then you start looking at, what's the news cycle over the last two or three weeks? And it went, you know, there's all that. Remember last week, I remember last week, one of our elders had led in, in uh, communion and he had prayed about the, the, the coup in Turkey and the stuff that happened in France, the guy who ran all those people from the truck in France and, and he's praying, and the racism and the hate crimes and the police being shot and he's praying about those things. And then I went to the, the Y to work out and I looked up at the TV screen and some police officers had been shot in Baton Rouge and my thought was, and I hate that this even happened, Another shooting. Oh, it's another one. Like, it's becoming desensitized. It just keeps happening. And so this stuff just keeps happening. There's coups against governments, and then there's hate crimes, and there's racism, and there's terrorism, and there's people being, police being shot, and all kinds of stuff, plus our own problems, abuse and abandonment and broken marriages and divorces and cancer. And, and then Pokemon Go comes, and it's like the world starts paying attention. It's like a distraction from reality. So I can see why that's appealing, which then reminds me of when I first started investigating a relationship with God, whether God was even real, I remember I went to a church for about six months, and it was a church that would be more ritualistic in their religions, a lot of forms and functions that they would do. And I remember at the end of that coming to the conclusion, God must not be real. All these church people just made it. They've come up with their own augmented reality. I didn't know that terminology then, but it was, it, it's, they don't know how to deal with the pain in this world. And so they make God up. It gives them a different lens through which to view the world, but he's not really there. Or if he is there, I thought, he's just off like creating stars so that we can gaze at them and wonder what he's doing out there and how he exists. He's not really active in our lives. But what then I ended up learning 
through the good news about Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ is that not only is he real, like it's indisputable that he walked the earth. It's historically a fact. Not only is he real in the sense that he exists, but he really wants a relationship with me. And he invited me into a relationship, and I realized that relationship is real. And the question I have for you today is, is your relationship with God a reality? And what I mean by that is this, not just talking about jargon. Like, it's easy to say, especially in our section of Christianity, it's easy to say, well, I have a relationship, not a religion. And what we mean is we're talking against legalism. Or we're talking against some of the ritualistic religions. I'm not talking about a jargon. I'm talking about is there a reality to the fact that you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you really relate with him? Today what we're going to talk about is the reality of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at it in Mark chapter 7. We'll start reading in verse 31. If you haven't turned there already, Mark chapter 7, looking at verses 31 through 37 today, talking about the reality of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the context obviously goes back to what I mentioned before I started preaching. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So who is he? And that's what all these passages and all these miracles and all these encounters and all the teaching and the rebuking and the comforting and the guidance and all the stuff we've seen have been about is to reveal to us who Jesus is. And over the last couple of weeks, what we've seen is that he's really interested in our hearts. And we talked about the hypocritical heart. And you see how Jesus interacts with people with a hypocritical heart. And then last week we talked about the pure in heart where this woman comes and she's begging Jesus, just give me one of the crumbs. Just, can I just have some of the crumbs? Can I just have a crumb? Just help my daughter. And we saw the pure heart. But what we've been focusing on is not doctrinal statements, not just belief systems, not just deeds that we need to do to be good people, but the person of Jesus Christ. And so as we read this passage of Scripture, think about what's being revealed about who Jesus is. It says this, right after that encounter with the woman who's begging for the crumb and then Jesus heals her daughter from a distance. He doesn't even have to go there. He heals her. It says, then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon and down to the Sea of Galilee. So he's back to where he's done most of his ministry. Into the region of the Decapolis. That's the 10 cities. The last time we saw this region was when Jesus in Mark chapter 5 went to a man who was demon-possessed and no one could bind him. No one could even keep contain this guy, much less help this guy. And then we saw that Jesus is stronger than the enemy. And he told that guy to go and share that with his friends. And apparently he did. Because there were a bunch of people that came around. It says in verse 32, There are some people brought to him, a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. Some of your translations say he was mute. And they begged him. The friends begged on behalf of the friend. Just like the mom was begging on behalf of her daughter last week, the friends begged him to place his hand on the man. Not even to heal him, just to bless him. Place your hand on the man. Verse 33. After Jesus took him aside... Away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and he touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Sorry, my Aramaic is really rusty. Which means be opened. Verse 35. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He's done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And here we've got another miracle that shows us that Jesus is stronger. But it's about more than just that Jesus is stronger than deafness, that Jesus is stronger than muteness, that Jesus can heal diseases. We've already seen Jesus is stronger than cancer. He's stronger than the storms of life. He's stronger than the enemy. He's stronger than any difficulty we can face. Amen? But there's more here than just Jesus doing another miracle, than just showing us another area that he's stronger than. 
This is a very intimate miracle, and we see the intimacy of Jesus here. And it's really interesting that Mark is the only one that records this miracle. Oftentimes when I've been teaching through Mark, you may have picked up, I'll share, Mark says this, but then Luke lets us in on this information. And we see the context here with Luke. And, or Mark says, but then Matthew also tells us, and Matthew gives us more details, but we don't have that with this story. Mark's the only one that records this miracle. Matthew gives a survey of it. He kind of sets the scene in Matthew chapter 15. And this is what Matthew says. Matthew says in Matthew 15, verses 29 through 31, in the same situation, same setting that Mark was in. Jesus left there after the woman and the crumb prayer. And he went along the Sea of Galilee, then went up to the mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. They laid him at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed, and then they saw the mute speaking, and the crippled made well, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. So no personal stuff, no specific stuff. And what happens here is that Matthew tells us there's crowds of people. There's probably thousands of people that are there. But Mark zooms in. It's like uh, I was sharing with my wife uh, about a couple months ago. I had been in a, a program studying with a group of guys for a couple years, and she had heard about all these different guys that were in my life. But she had never met them. But there's this one guy. His name's Bo. Bo's a pastor in Dallas, Texas. And I told her when I was, I was telling, you know, when you meet this guy, he's going to be like this. And when you meet this guy, it'll probably be this kind of interaction. This is how this guy acts and thinks. And, but when you meet Bo, I said, when you talk to Bo, it doesn't matter if you're in a room with thousands of people and there's hundreds of conversations going on. Bo's the kind of guy that makes you feel like you're the only person in the room. He's so there with you. He's so personal. That's what Mark's doing here. There's this and lame are walking and blind are seeing and the mute are speaking. But he zooms in amongst the thousands of people and the hundreds of conversations and all the situations and he focuses in on this one man and he gives these vivid details because he's showing us that Jesus is a personal savior. And why can a relationship with Jesus be a reality? Well, it's because Jesus is such a personal savior. Don't miss that. Jesus is a personal savior. And by personal, I don't mean like you'd have your personal communication device, like your phone or your tablet and it belongs to you or your personal bank account. Like you have access to it. Nobody else has access to it. It's private. And that's not what I mean. I don't mean private. I mean personal, but not private. And by personal, I don't mean that he's just like you. By personal, what I'm talking about is that he's intimate, that he's accessible, that he's knowable, that he knows you and he wants you to know him. Now, he is transcendent. He does put the stars in place. The scriptures do tell us that he tells the, the ocean to only go so far. Job tells us that. He tells the ocean where to stop. He's huge. He holds everything in place. He controls all events, everything that's happening. He's actively involved in all the small details, but even from the big picture. And so when there's a, a farm in Nebraska that needs rain, and the farmer's praying for rain there, and there's an earthquake that happens in Japan, and they're praying for help in the tragedy there, he's simultaneously holding both situations together. He holds the world in the palm of his hands. And when you have tragedy, he's in control of your life too. There's every conversation you're going to have, every relationship you're going to come in contact with, he's orchestrating those things. He is cosmic, he's big, he's transcendent, but he's also imminent. He's personal. He's intimate. So intimate, he knows everything about you even when the last hair will fall off your head. That's one of the reasons why I love Psalm 139 so much. In Psalm 139, uh, the psalmist says, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. 
You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You know what I'm thinking before I even think those things. And then he goes on, he, he says about the words, you discern my going out and my lying down. You know all my activities. You know where I walk around. You're familiar with all of my ways, everything that I do. Before a word's on my tongue, okay, before I said, he knew that, he got, ah, I can't go fast enough. Even I can't go fast enough. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You know every detail. And Matthew, he talks about the sparrows and how he knows every sparrow. And not a sparrow falls to the ground that God doesn't know about. It says not two sparrows sold for a penny. That's how, how worthless they are. Two, not even worth a whole penny. Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your will, our Father. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So not one of those is going to fall to the ground without him either. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. He cares a lot about you. And he knows everything about you. Which if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, that should be terrifying. Because you, you can't hide anything from him. But for those of you who know Jesus Christ as Savior, that means that you've placed your faith not in your righteousness, but in his. And what he did on the cross when he died to pay the penalty for your sins because we were enemies of God and he died for us and he washed us clean with the blood of Christ. And that means this. He sees you as the righteousness of Jesus. And so he knows everything about you. He knows all your sins. He knows all the details. And he loves you and wants a relationship with you. You can be fully known and fully loved. That should cause you to treasure Christ. Here's the good news. Those of you who could be terrified by the fact that he knows everything about you and tremble in that can move from trembling in that to treasuring that by having a relationship with Jesus. And you can have a relationship with Jesus because he's a personal savior. And we see it in this passage of Scripture. Go back to the passage in Mark chapter 7. And look what happens here. And try to imagine being this guy. In verse 32, we're told that he was deaf. That means he couldn't hear. And then the NIV says he could hardly talk. My NIV is interesting because the subtitle says the healing of a deaf and mute man. But then they translate he could hardly talk. So he could talk a little bit. So probably the case was that this guy wasn't born deaf. He heard speech. He learned how to speak. And then became deaf. deaf. I don't know if it was from illness or an accident or what happened. But well, try to imagine being this guy. You can't hear at all. And you struggle to speak, and that would be difficult now. But back in this time, you've got to remember, there was no remedy for this. There are no solutions. There are no ways to overcome some of these things. This was not, you know, no cochlear implants, no, uh, no speech therapy. The, the, even the things that they would have would have been so primitive in that time. And so what most people believed was that if somebody was like this, it was because they had a mental disability. And so they would treat them accordingly. In fact, deaf people were categorized uh, separately with a category like the slaves. Like they, were, they weren't even expected to keep the law. Of course, they can't hear the law. This guy's probably never heard the preaching. Maybe he's never, we don't know when this happened to him, but maybe he's never even heard the simple words, I love you. You're trying to imagine the isolation this man experiences. Put on top of that, that Jews believed that if you had a condition like this, it was your fault. It was because of your sin. It was God's judgment in your life. If you want to see this on your own, then go to John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, Jesus' disciples are the ones that ask this question. They don't have any bad intent. They're just asking a question from the general belief system then about a man who's been blind since birth. They say, who sinned? This guy or his parents? Whose fault is it that this guy's blind? That was the belief then. So if you're this guy that's deaf, it's, people believe it's your fault that you're deaf. And you're a second-class citizen, and most people think it's because you have mental disability. Now, I don't know if you've ever met somebody that maybe because of a stroke or an illness or an accident, 
where they just can't communicate anymore, but they know what's going on and how frustrating that is? If so, you can sense what this man's going through because it's not a mental disability for this man. He just can't hear. He can't communicate. The frustration that that must bring. Now, Jesus says in John chapter 9 in that situation with the guy that's blind, he said it wasn't this man's sin or his parents' sin. It was for the glory of God. Now, it was ultimately because there was sin in the world, because things were not as they should be. And that's the world that we live in now. Things are not as they should be. And they weren't for this guy either. And his friends knew it. And so they grab him, and he probably has never even heard of Jesus. He doesn't know where they're going. He just trusts his friends. And so his friends take him to Jesus, and there's this guy there, and there's this huge crowd, and there's thousands of people, and this lame guy starts walking, and a blind guy can see, and the demons cast out. and He's doing, he's doing all these miracles, like Matthew surveyed. And then his friends start begging on his behalf to Jesus. And do you want to see how personal it is? Look at what happens next. Verse 33. After he took him aside, pause. Why? Why did he take him aside? It wasn't for Jesus' own benefit. Jesus doesn't heal this guy to increase his popularity. It wasn't for the benefit of the crowd that he took him aside because if you're in the crowd, you're there because either you want to be healed or you want to see healing. It's the best show in town. So I imagine it wasn't even easy to take him aside, to have a private conversation with this guy amongst, the crowd, amongst all the thousands of people. What he's doing is he's, I want to make you feel like you're the only one here with thousands of people, hundreds of conversations, all kinds of situations we're going to focus in on you. He took him aside, away from the crowd. And then look what Jesus does. Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, and then he spit and he touched the man's tongue. What's he doing? This isn't magic, and this isn't medical. And Jesus, we know, doesn't have to do this to heal the guy. Because we've already seen him cast out demons, just the word of his mouth. We've seen him heal from a distance last week. We've seen him take the leper and have his hand pull his hand out, and the leprosy's gone. That we've seen uh, guys that couldn't walk lower through the ceiling and then they get up and they walk out. Jesus just, he doesn't even have to say a word if he doesn't want to. But usually he just says a word. He could have just said, be open, and this guy could hear. But instead, he do, why does he take his fingers and stick them in this guy's ears? And why does he touch this man's tongue and spit? It's because he's communicating with this man in the only way that this man can understand. It's sign language. It's primitive sign language. Now, people will talk about, scholars will discuss sometimes about how Jesus knew different languages. Last week, when he was speaking to the Gentile woman, the Greek woman, he probably spoke Greek. This week, he speaks Aramaic in the passage. But I've never heard anybody list sign language as one of Jesus' languages. But he does it here with this man. Do you know why? Because he's so personal. It's like when he takes his fingers and he sticks them in the man's ears, he's saying, I realize you don't have a mental disability. You've got a blockage in your hearing. And when he takes and he touches the man's tongue, he's saying, I'm going to loosen your tongue. I'm going to loosen your tongue as he spits on probably his own fingers and touches the man's tongue. And then you see what happens in the next part of the passage. It says he looked up to heaven. And this power comes from God. People would realize he was looking to God. This power comes from God. And then do you see what it says? It says that he sighed. Why does Jesus sigh? Have you ever been frustrated before? Oh, like you don't even have words. Sometimes in prayer, this word is used in prayer in other places in the New Testament. You see that the Holy Spirit interprets that. When we, we don't even have the words to say to God. What's happening here is that Jesus is feeling this man's pain. He's feeling how overwhelming it is to live in this broken world. He's being incredibly 
personal, but do you notice it's different than what we've seen over the last couple of weeks? This isn't how he communicated with the Pharisees. With the Pharisees, he confronts them. He in- intentionally has a controversy about not washing hands, which I don't know if you notice in verses 1 through 23, he never even addresses that. He never even talks about the fact that he didn't wash his hands because he's going after the hearts of those men. And he confronts them. You're like, whitewash tombs. You clean the outside. You don't deal with the inside. You're all focused on washing hands. You don't realize how dirty your hearts are. Then you see the woman last week. He doesn't confront the woman last week. It seems like he's distant from her. Like she keeps coming and keeps asking and keeps bothering and keeps annoying. And then finally the disciples say, will you just tell her to go away? And he doesn't even, he, he deals with her differently. And then you see this man, he pulls him aside and he's incredibly intimate with this man. Do you know why? Because Jesus doesn't love us all the same. For some of you, that might be bothersome to hear. Jesus doesn't love us all the same. Well, wait, but God loves the world. Yes, he does love the world. And he loves every individual in the world. And I'm not talking about, does he love someone more than someone else? I'm not asking, does, uh, does he love Michael more than he loves Scott? Does he love, you know, Robert more than he loves Arnold? Does he love, I'm, not ask, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about quantity of love. God does love the world. In fact, he loves us so much, you can't even comprehend how much he loves you. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 3 when he's praying. And he's praying about people like us in a church in Ephesus. He says, he prays that they may have power together with all the saints. Oh, so that's for us then. All of us who place our faith in Jesus. To do what? To grasp, to understand how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Then verse 19. And to know this love that you can't possibly know. (laughs) To know this love that surpasses knowledge. You can't just know this love. You must experience this love. I want you to know this love that you, just, you can't even understand it. If I tell, they can't put words on it. He loves you so much you can't comprehend how much quantity he loves you. But it doesn't mean he loves you all the same because you're all individuals. You're fearfully and wonderfully made, uniquely made, each person. God's masterpiece, and he knows how to love you. Tim Keller, in his book, uh, The King and the Cross, tells some stories uh, from the book of Mark. And as he's talking about this story, he talks about how he gives this man what he needs when he speaks to him in sign language. And God always gives us what we need. We might not always realize what we need, but he always gives us what we need. And he illustrates it by talking about John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, uh, there's two friends of Jesus, Mary and Martha, and their brother has just died, Lazarus, who is also a friend of Jesus. Both of these women come to Jesus, both say the exact same thing to Jesus, and Jesus responds in what couldn't be more different responses. Martha comes first, and she says, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus rebukes Martha. Then Mary comes. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus weeps with Mary. Why exact same words, exact same context? Why two totally different responses? Because he's talking to two different people. And Jesus is incredibly personal, and his love for you is incredibly personal. I remember wondering about this as a father when uh, my wife and I found out that we were pregnant with our second daughter. And uh, some of you have probably had this experience before as a parent. We had our first child, and I loved her so much. I couldn't imagine that I could ever love somebody that much again. And so it was right, I remember it was right when we were planting the church. The church was just getting started. We were meeting as a small group over at the country club. We were doing everything we could to grow the church, obviously having more kids. It's <coughs> not why we had another child. But we found out that we were having this baby, and I remember thinking, I can't love her the way that I love the first one. And I don't think I'd have the capacity to love that way. But it wasn't about capacity. God gives the capacity to love more 
But the reality is I don't love them all the same. I've got four now. <laughs> Things are getting complicated. And it's not to grow the church, by the way, but they're all different individuals. And so one needs words. They all seem to need time. <laughs> one needs something. It's like different ones receive love in a different way. And if I'm going to meet those needs as their father, which is a representation of their father in heaven, then I've got to know them individually. God knows everything about you. The very hairs on your head, your thoughts before you think them, the words before you say them, and he knows how to love you. And he knows whether you need to be confronted, whether you need to be disciplined, whether you need to be comforted, whether you need to be guided. Whether you need, He's the wonderful counselor, by the way. Whether you need to be counseled. And it's incredibly personal, and you know it when you start to think about your story, and you ask yourself, how did God speak to you? How did he get through to you? And for some of you, maybe it was at Awana when you were a kid. Maybe it was a sermon. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher. Maybe you grew up in church and you're always around it and you didn't want to go to hell and so he drew you to this, this promise of what heaven was like. Or maybe you saw that and you ran from it and you didn't like it and you didn't like religion. And so God used tragedy or God used a difficulty or maybe it was something you saw, I couldn't possibly do this on my own and God did it. It was provision. And it's different for all these. All of us have different stories because God's incredibly personal and he knows how to speak to each one of us. Which then has got to make you ask yourself the question, why does Mark put this story in here? Why is Mark the only gospel writer that records this story? Which is really interesting when you start to think about it. You may remember that I've shared with you before that Mark gets a lot of his eyewitness material from Peter. Well, think about Peter's story if you know anything about the gospel. And then look at this man's story. And what we see happening physically in this man's life is parallel to what happens spiritually in Peter's life. This guy can't hear. Peter, are you so dull? How do you not get this? I've, just, I've done the same miracle in front of you multiple times. You still don't see what's happening. Explain to us this parable, Jesus, we saw earlier in chapter 7. Uh, it wasn't a parable. I just was telling you the truth. But then what happens with Peter, we get to the book of Acts, and he preaches the sermon in Acts chapter, three, Acts chapter 2, where 3,000 people come to Christ, he loosens his tongue. And so Peter, I can imagine saying to Mark, you've got to put this story in there. Because it's his story. You know what the reality is? It's your story too. And my story. We couldn't hear. We were deaf. Spiritually speaking, we couldn't hear, but somehow God broke through to us, those of us who know Jesus. So what did he do in your life? That's one of the reasons why personal stories are so powerful. Is because you, you identify with something. And I can share my story and you say, oh, I identify with that part, I identify with that part. Or maybe it'd be different than yours. And somebody else would share their story and... That's why sharing your personal story of your relationship with God is so powerful in other people's lives. In fact, I had a young lady come up to me uh, two or three weeks ago. We did our last Discovering Southbridge. Her name's Ileana. She's a 15-year-old. She's in our student ministry, SYU, here at the church. And she was waiting for me when I, you know, Discovering Southbridge is you meet all the new people and let them ask questions and talk about the church and whatever they'd like to know and whether it's a good fit. And and she was just kind of hanging out there. And when I was done, I walked over and she wanted to tell me a story. Her story was that she was on a train from Washington, D.C., and God had her sit next to a 60-year-old woman who had never been to church and a 40-year-old man who had gone to church his whole life. And she shared her story with them. Now, if you don't know her story, a lot of our friends call her Illy. Illy's story is that uh, it's pretty tough, difficult story. She's actually born in Colorado. Her family that she has here at Southbridge is her adopted family. The family she was born into, her mom was a drug addict ended up dying from a drug overdose. And everything that goes with that is part of her story. And it's painful. And it's difficult. And she told me I could share with you. It meant no power, no food, no provision, no guidance, 
uh, you know, difficult situations, uh, domestic situations where the police would come. It was bad. And it was a lot of pain. And she's sharing that with this 40-year-old man and this 6-year-old woman on this train from D.C. here to North Carolina. And she's talking about what it was like as a 6-year-old when she was just 6 years old having to feed her little sister through a feeding tube because her mom was high on meth. And the guy who she thought was her dad wasn't really her dad. She was lied to about that. And then when she got to be 10 years old, I don't know if you knew, but you can age out of the adoption system. She was about to age out of the adoption system. And then she got adopted by the family that's here at Southbridge. And she shared with the, couple, the 40-year-old man and the 6-year-old woman, a couple of people that she was sitting on this train with, God's got a bigger plan for my life. And then shared with them about Jesus Christ, Jesus who knew, knows more pain than Illy will ever know. She talked about a Savior who knows what it is to be abused, knows what it is to be abandoned, knows what it is to be neglected, knows what it is to be betrayed, knows what it is to be lied to, knows what it is to be lied about, knows what it is to experience physical pain, emotional pain, knows what it is to have to take the responsibility that should belong to someone else on himself. Because that's what he did when he went to the cross. And he took on your sin and my sin. And he died for those sins and experienced the wrath of God because we were enemies. Not only did we, it's not like we did a bad thing. It's not like we were just the conceptually, we were bad people. We were enemies of God, Romans 5. We were against him and he died for us. That's how much he loves. That's how personal it is. And Illy shared that with those people that were sitting on that train. The six-year-old woman, once Illy was done sharing her story, just started weeping. And she said, I want to know God like that. And Illy was able to lead her into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 15-year-old girl from our church. And everybody doesn't respond the same way. So the, the six-year-old woman had never been to church before. She hears the story of Jesus Christ and what he can do and hears her story and realizes she wants that to be like her story and she trusts Christ. And then the 40-year-old man, he doesn't start weeping because everybody responds differently. He's gone to church his whole life and he knew about God, but he didn't really know God. And he said, I don't know God like that and I want to. And she led him to Christ too. Praise the Lord for that. Because it's personal for each one of us. And so the question for you today is this, is it personal for you? You have a personal relationship. And how has it been personal to you? Is it personal in its provision? Is it personal in its comfort? Is it personal in its counsel? Is it personal in its guidance? We talk about promises of Jesus. Those are not just ideas out there to be thought about, to be memorized, or to you know, try and encourage you in a difficult moment. So we talk about Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Has he really given you rest? How's he done that? And if he has, that's personal. We, we talk about how we can be forgiven of our sins. First John 1 John 1.9, he is faithful, he's just, he will forgive us of our sins. If he's done that for you, it doesn't get any more personal than that. Talk about he will provide for you. He'll give you everything that you need. Has he? Because if he has, that's so personal. My, my wife loves to tell the story about when we first got married. It's just one of the stories of his provision in our lives. When we first got married, I was a youth pastor. We would have the youth group over on Monday nights to do a Bible study at our house. And she was on a, one of our first shopping trips after us getting married. And she saw some cake mix that she wanted to buy, make cake for the kids, and some cookies she wanted to buy, and some brownie mix that she wanted to buy. But we didn't have any money, and so she didn't buy that stuff. And then the next week, she was out in the parking lot at our church, and this woman comes pulling up. She barely knows says, hey, I was at the grocery store and I was thinking of you and Scott and so I bought this stuff and she pops open her trunk and it was the exact brownie mix, the exact cookies, and the exact cake mix that she wanted to buy and it was in a laundry basket and we didn't own one of those either. <laughs> it was beyond what we could have asked or imagined. 
and she gave them to us. And, and my wife just got so personal. And it gets more intense than that. And you see God do healings. And you see God answer prayers. And you see God's guidance. And you see God's comfort. And you see his provision. See, it doesn't actually get any more personal than the cross. But I talk about the cross every week. And so what some of you might do mentally is check out when I start talking about that. For all have sinned. Yeah, everybody sins. Do you realize that when Jesus was carrying a cross to the streets of Jerusalem, it wasn't because of the concept of sin? What's your greatest regret? It was because of that. That's what he's carrying through the streets of Jerusalem. When nails get put through his hands, it's not because all are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. That is true, but it was because of your lust, your pride, your anger, your self-determination, your self-reliance, your independence. That's rebelling against God. That nails him to a cross. That's why his beard's ripped out. That's why thorn crowns are stuck on his head. It's not just conceptual stuff. It's personal. It gets no more personal than that. And he did it for you because he loves you, because he wants a relationship with you. He is a personal Savior, but not only a personal Savior, he is a praiseworthy Savior. That's what we see at the end of this passage. That Jesus, we can have a real relationship with him, and we would want one because of who he is, because of the person of Jesus, and he is a praiseworthy Savior. You look at what happens after he says this Aramaic word, after he does the sign language, he pulls the guy aside, he's incredibly personal, then he says the words, be opened, and then the next verse, verse 35. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Then verse 36, Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, wait a minute, I haven't been able to talk for years, and now your command is, don't talk. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking. Okay, I get it, Jesus. It's like reverse psychology. Don't go tell, because I want you to go tell. No. He doesn't want them to go say anything because they don't really understand who he is. Remember in John chapter 6, at about this time, they're trying to make him king by force. They think he's a miracle worker. They've got these false political ideas about Jesus. And so he doesn't need to spread his popularity, but he's got compassion on people, so he keeps doing these miracles. But what he's done is so good, they can't, they can't not talk about it. And so they go and they keep talking about it. People were saying, verse 37, and people were overwhelmed with amazement, verse 37. In fact, that's interesting too because in other places we see in Mark, people were astonished. They were amazed. But this is the only place that says they were overwhelmed. They were beyond amazement, beyond what we could ask or imagine. He is a mighty God. There's nothing he cannot do. He is stronger than anything we could face. And they said this statement, he's done everything well. They said, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And what you have here is more like Mark's style where he starts going boom, 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 giving us these bullet points, giving us these details. that are, There are these overview that are like, it was this and this and this, and they're all showing us why Jesus is worthy of praise. He's worthy of praise because, and he intentionally points us back to Isaiah here. The way that he does it, you really got to dive into this passage to see this. But back in verse 32, the word that's translated different in many of our translations, some says mute, some says he could hardly talk, was a really rare word. In fact, it's the only place that's used in the New Testament for being hardly able to talk, for being mute. There's one other place it's used in the Bible. It's in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint and Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 35, what's going on in Isaiah chapter 35 is that Isaiah's prophesying 700 years earlier. He's prophesying and saying, this is what it's going to be like when God's rule comes to this earth. And just verse 6, you can read the other verses on your own, but just verse 6 says this, then 
Will the lame leap like a deer? We saw that in Mark 2. And the mute tongue shout for joy. That's what's happening right here. So what's being said? That Jesus is God's rule on the earth. If Jesus is God's rule on the earth, then guess what? He's worthy of praise. What's also being said here is that God's a promise-keeping God. He promised this 700 years earlier. If you tell me something that's like a little week later, I'm like, are you, gonna, are you doing it? Or 700 years earlier, God promises this, and he's saying, here's the fulfillment. It's Jesus. Do you know what Jesus is? Jesus is the, he's the fulfillment of all God's promises. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, all God's promises are yes in Christ. If that is true, Jesus is worthy of our praise. These people realize it. It says they're beyond amazed. And then look what they say. He does everything well. That's an allusion to another Old Testament passage. Some of you are familiar with the Old Testament. You've read the Bible before. You know, in Genesis chapter 1, it says there's this pattern. He creates and it's good. He creates and it's good. He creates and it's good. This is an allusion to the last verse in Genesis chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 31 says this. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Everything he did, he does all things well. And do you believe that's true? No, don't answer. Don't answer right away. Does he do all things well? Because think about what he does. He created you. Did he create you well? And some of you always, oh, no, I wish this, and I wish he'd change that, and I wish my nose was over here, or whatever it was. You look in the mirror. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. He made you exactly the way that he wanted to make you. Does he do all things well? Does he love you well? Does he provide for you well? Does he comfort you well? Does he counsel you well? Does he guide you well? Does he... Does he really do? If he does all things well, then guess what? He's worthy of praise. But why a creation verse? Why Genesis 131? And what's happening here when he takes this man who's deaf and mute, what's he doing? He's doing a creative work where he's making a new creation. He's restoring things the way that they should be because here's the reality. Things are not as they should be. And we know that. Why is Pokemon Go so popular? I don't want to deal with terrorism. I don't want to deal with racism. I don't want to deal with all this other stuff. It's natural. I'm not even condemning it. I'm just saying it's to get an escape, augmented reality seems a lot better than reality. But Jesus offers a new reality. Things are not as they should be. There shouldn't be racism. Any racism that you have in your heart, that's not from God. That's not just to be private with your friends, by the way. If it's in your heart, it shows the wickedness of your heart. And God needs to deal with that. Terrorism, not from God. You can use Bible verses and all, and all the different verses, whatever you want to use for all that stuff. That's not from God. Hatred. Cancer is not from God. Divorce, not from God. Abuse, not from God. Not having a job is not from God, by the way. He might use that in your life in this broken world, but you were supposed to work. It's before the fall in Genesis. Not supposed to have the frustration, not for the sweat of your brow. That's not how creation was intended to be. That's a result of sin, all the frustrations, the difficulties with work. But you were made to work. So these things, they're not as they should be. And so what is Jesus doing? He's renewing. That's why he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And so we can listen to the talking heads on the news or we can debate at the water coolers at our offices about, hey, if we just had better education, if we just feed people, if we just do this, then then the world would be better. And that's, that doesn't work. That's not the answer. The answer is that he changes us. He changes, we become a new creation. And then we do see the world differently. And then he's worthy of praise and we can't help talking about it because of what he's done to transform us. And then meal programs and you know, working in the prisons all this is a platform to give the true answer, which is Jesus Christ. 
And if that is true, if he is the son of God, if he does change our lives, then he is worthy of praise. But you look at the last thing it says in this passage. There's one more verse that's also an allusion to an Old Testament verse. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. That's an allusion to Exodus chapter 4 and verse 11. That's when Moses is arguing with God and saying, I can't speak well, which is ironic because you're a murderer, Moses, but you're debating about your speech ability. How are you going to use me? I think I would have said, I killed people. But instead he says, I stutter. I can't speak well. Then God says, who gave man his mouth? Who makes deaf or mute? The answer is God. When they say in this passage, whether they realize or not, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak, they're saying he is God. Which means he's worthy of praise. So do we praise him? With our lives, with our words, in the songs that we sing here, but not just here, continually, because it's an overflow of our hearts. And what is praise? Some people think that praise is just giving honor to God. It's like paying him a compliment. It's giving him his due. It's not that. It's more than that. It's an overflow of your enjoyment in who he is. See, C.S. Lewis, he struggled with believing in God because he thought that God was an egomaniac because you read the Psalms and it talks about him needing praise and he should be praised and why you should praise him. And so he thought, well, anybody that would demand to be praised, that's a, that's a problem. What he didn't realize was that it is actually the fulfillment of your joy that you find so much joy in him to then praise him. And so what he's actually commanding us to do in praising him is to enjoy him. And so Lewis gives, and I've quoted it before, I've shared with you before, how he says, when you, when you want, when you see something you enjoy, you spontaneously praise it. And not only that, but you urge other people to join you. And so you fall in love. Isn't she lovely? And you want them to affirm that. You hear a great piece of music. Isn't it wonderful? Poetry, isn't it, isn't it beautiful? Do you see what's happening here? And we, we, en- we encourage other people. It's like a fulfillment of our enjoyment that they would enjoy it with us. A, a little small example. This week I had a meeting in downtown Raleigh and I I had a parking spot, which is a miracle in and of itself. And when I came out of the meeting, I realized, oh, God, you had me park right in front of a gourmet hot dog spot. It must be your will. I must go eat gourmet hot dogs for lunch today. And so I went into this place and I ordered this hot dog and it was a hot dog with Philly cheesesteak meat on top of it and all kinds of cheeses that would come up. Isn't that, that's like a gift from the Lord, isn't it? Anyway. So I took a picture of it. Now I'm not a foodie. I'm not like post this stuff on my social media and do all that stuff, but But I knew there were some friends that I have that would also enjoy a hot dog like this. And so I texted it to them. Part of my enjoying my meal was to share it with someone else. Now, if I would do that with a hot dog, how much more the redeemer of my soul that I have a, if I have a real relationship with, like gamers are praising Pokemon Go. And and foodies are praising food that they eat. And people that go to shows, whether it's a Broadway show or a movie or whatever, the people that are in the arts and they see the art. And it's, isn't this amazing? They, and so us, if we've been transformed, we are made new, old things are gone, new has come, and we have a personal savior who personally broke through into our story and is personally provided and cared for and comforted and counseled and redeemed. Shouldn't we praise him? It should be like, these guys are disobeying by doing this, but they can't help but do this. Now later what happens is that he tells people to go talk about him. Ironically now, it's like you've got to force people to talk about him, some people, but that wasn't the way that was in the Bible. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 20, you see the, the apostles, they're standing before folks that could kill them. And they say, just don't talk about Jesus anymore. And they say, we can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. We have to talk about him. Is that true for you? 
if he's praiseworthy, it should be true. If he's personal, if he's a promise keeper, if he's the things that we've talked about in this message today, that should be true of us. Is it true of you? And if it is, let's praise him. If it's not, don't. But I want to invite you right now. We're going to stand together, have an opportunity to sing to our Savior. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you can change that right now too. He knows everything about you. He knows your sin already. You acknowledge your sin before him. Acknowledge what he already knows to be true. And then in your heart, you shift your trust from whatever it is you're trusting in to trusting in what he's done for you on the cross because he died for your personal sins. And if you want to trust Jesus as your Savior today, please do that. Just call upon him. Ask him to be Lord. Ask him to be Savior.